0: a special guest this week give you guys uh, some backstory so James Ryan is a good friend of mine going way back
1: yeah years what year do we meet I met you in 2001 maybe 2000 I mark I mark my date as April 6 2001
0: it was probably 2001
1: yeah yeah and anyway, when I
0: say backstory, um, you know, he was around for the very beginning of what, in my opinion, what has eventually morphed into resistance recovery, at least, at least from where I'm sitting. Huh. Um, and so he's got a lot of, uh, he's a great researcher, a great writer, and he's got um, quite a tale to tell. I've, I've oft- he asked if he could interview me as well, so there may be a little bit of that. So anyway let's
1: start you want to start with origin stuff or what to start with just james ryan saying who james ryan is oh so i'm james ryan i'm an addict in recovery my sobriety date is april 6 2001 um i'm currently a phd candidate at university of wisconsin-madison um where i'm studying in a field called composition and rhetoric which is like a too fancy term for people who want to be writing teachers, mostly. Um, And I've written my dissertation on recovery writing. So I've interviewed people in recovery about the kinds of writing that they do that they consider to be part of their uh, recovery program and sort of talked to them about, like, what kinds of writing did you do? What was your experience with that kind of writing? What happened as a result? Those were kind of the primary questions. which turned up all kinds of interesting things from a recovery perspective um, and some interesting things from an academic perspective, (laughs) which is always, writing this thing has felt really like a split consciousness in in a weird way. Like on one hand, I'm uh, having to make this useful to some niche academic conversation. And on the other hand, I'm like all this stuff is already super interesting and useful from a recovery perspective. So there's like those two pieces of that research that are kind of sometimes in conflict. Well,
0: it'll be interesting to see um, who reads it in the response, because one thing that you can do is we can give you a platform. Okay. So, you know, we got 1300 people now and I'm sure it'll be bigger soon. And then we can just put it out there. We could even do a Zoom meeting just about the, the dissertation. Dissertation, sure. Yeah.
1: That'd be cool. Um, it's going to be a bunch of academic jargon and then plus recovery stories. So
0: yeah.
1: like, uh, and by academic jargon, it's like, how is recovery writing useful to scholars of writing generally? It's yeah. kind of like, is like that. If that's the angle of the dissertation. Uh, if it gets rewritten someday into like a recovery book, it'll look really different. Like how do we write and why do we do it? Well, we can give a disclaimer of more pages. Please. <laughs> right. Unless you really want to get into the gobbledygook, skip the yeah. chapter two. Yeah. All right. Well,
0: I mean, I think we owe our audience a little uh, background, you know, because from where I sit, your story has got some extremely dramatic and unconventional aspects to it. Okay. <laughs> So maybe just give us the, the picture of just give it to us. Starting with, you know, son of a minister and the you oh, oh, oh.
1: wound up. And <clears throat> okay. Like back to family roots and stuff like that. Three generations. I mean. <laughs> yeah, right. Grandpa, great grandpa, James Ryan coming over and from Ireland. Right. Um. Yeah. So I grew up, in like a suburban white middle-class family dad was a minister mom was a uh, therapist i mean that's that background um never drank or got high or anything until after i dropped out of high school my senior year um and when i did it sort of like lit up parts of me that i didn't know could be lit up. in terms of like uh, feeling good, obviously, but also like these realms of the brain that I didn't know I could experience, uh, which proved to be both interesting and dangerous. Um, within about a year of smoking weed and dropping acid, I was, uh, you know, in the nut house. I was institutionalized. In, in California, they call it 5150 where like the state determines that you're unsafe to yourself and others and you need to go into an institution. Um, You want like details of that? You want like weird stories? Probably you want weird Yeah, I mean, I think a little color is always good. (laughs) Um, So typical like Friday afternoon for me was like, I'd been up all night um, and I'm walking through the suburbs of LA and uh i'm just hearing all the voices i'm hearing every voice of every person in every house that i pass and they all think i'm an asshole like it it, house for house everyone's like this fucking guy why is he here in our neighborhood i'm gonna let my dogs out and they'll chew him up and like all this stuff from every single house so i just keep you got to keep walking to stay ahead of the the wave of hate (laughs) that follows you you know um And so it was house after house of this like um, animosity and like ill will, and you know I'm just trying to keep ahead of it and block it out as best I can. Um, And then I come across upon this lady who is out front just watering her front yard with a hose. This old lady in like I don't know nightgown and the hair and one of those net things, and she's watering. She's smoking a cigarette. And when I get to her, she says, "Um, "I heard you coming." So I had a glass of whiskey and came outside to see for myself. (laughs) I just, I didn't know what to say to that. She was like saying the quiet part out loud. You're not supposed to tell people you can hear their voice in your brain. You're not supposed to talk about, I'm not supposed to talk about those things. People think I'm crazy. Right. And so here she is just telling it to me. Uh, And it kind of like blew my brain back a little bit. I didn't know what to say. So I just didn't say anything (laughs) and kept walking. Um. So it was like, obviously, not a very functional guy, <laughs> having some weird experiences um, that were fun at first, but got to this point where I can't shut them off, and um, that kind of stuff is happening, right? Um, go to the nut house, and I'm convinced. Did you? Did
0: you? Did you? At the time,
1: say this is because of LSD <clears throat> and weed. No, it was, it was a government experiment, is what it was. And they were trying to see, like, like I had unlocked something, obviously, with my, you know, chemicals. But uh, now I had it, and they were trying to poke at me in different ways in order to see what sort of powers would come out, if I would explode. They didn't care what happened, they were just curious, right? And so certain cars would pass. Um, you could actually, like, see in patterns of traffic, the colors of cars were you know, coded messages. So I could like read like, you know, black car, white car, white car, black car, red car, red car meant a thing. Um, I don't remember what the code was. <laughs> I wish I did. Uh, but it was like, it was that kind of, it was what I was thinking was like, um, people are out to get me, the government is, is pushing. Um, there seemed to be two separate factions that were kind of, you know, the black car people and the white car people. And they wanted to push it in different directions, but we're just curious to see what could come of a, of a superpowered guy like me. <laughs> Did you ever, have you ever looked at um,
0: John Weir Perry, Trials yeah. of Visionary Mind? No. So he's a Jungian who <clears throat> worked with, it wasn't drug stuff, he worked with first onset psychosis. Okay. It couldn't be people that had already been in institutionalized and such. Mm-hmm. And no medications. And he did it in a residential setting. It was basically a house, uh-huh. a ton of art supplies, no, no patholog- pathologization of the client. Uh-huh. Um, you were not to contradict the, the delusions, none of that. Right. And he kept really good records and he got state funding. It was in California in the late 60s. And what it's a fascinating thing because what he did tracking their artwork and their delusions is he was because of the Jungian training, he was able to show all the powerful, uh uh-huh. you know, off the charts. And he gets into it the king and the two sides, and you know, it's quite interesting. Yeah, but what he said was he said this very interesting thing he said, Most of his clients there was a natural progression. He used that term of their psychosis. That was six weeks long, which is interesting. Six yes, yeah, Right. And he said, most of them, the overwhelming majority of them post morbid functioned at a much higher level than pre morbid. Okay. They're more just together more. Yeah. Agents in their own lives kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, um, And then he said, it all would change when they had one little insight into the paranoia or the delusions actually being a projection of an internal drama. Right. He said the second they had that insight,
1: Uh it was enough. And then healing just was right after. Oh, wow. Wow. I could see that. So it's like a six-week window and then gain that insight. And then.
0: Well, they get it somewhere in the six weeks and then they.
1: Yeah. Right. Wow. That's cool. Cause it is very much like, like what I was experiencing was very much like an interpretive scramble. Like I was getting all these stimuli and was just reading it through this very like self-centered narrative of like, I am the most powerful being in the world and everybody pays attention to me. (laughs) Messianic thing. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, to, To this day, do you still think
0: there was a certain veracity in some of what you experienced?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how to account for that lady on the lawn saying that shit. It's either she didn't say it or she wasn't there, but I saw it, but it felt like she was there. Like, I can't. It's such a real experience that it's hard to just dismiss as like crazy. right? And have you,
0: subsequently, have you been troubled by that side of it? That there was some part of it that spoke to some other reality?
1: Um, is that something you try times, to think about? I, no, at times I've been troubled by it. I would say I'm in a better place with it now than I've ever been. Um, the the risk is like you know the fear is like I don't want to break that seal again. I don't yeah. want to be that guy walking down the neighborhood. Everybody's trying to sick dogs on him. I don't want to be that guy. No. Um, so the fear has always been, well, if I do certain spiritual things or if I, you know, follow this road too much or give it too much credibility, then, you know, what the, maybe there's a slippery slope there. That's been the nervousness. And I think for a while, then maybe that was even true. Um, but more recently I've felt more stable. Like I, I couldn't even do like, um, Oxford group has this thing called two way prayer where you sit down and you get quiet for a minute and. Um, you sort of pray like, you know, God, what do you want me to be doing today? And you sort of listen for insight and write down whatever comes. That felt way too risky to me uh, to do that kind of work because it's like, you know, I've I've heard voices and follow them around town. (laughs) I got into weird situations because uh, because I'd done that. So the idea that I'm going to purposefully put myself into a place to hear voices uh, felt very scary to me. Um, and maybe it's been in the last 10, eight to 10 years where, um, that stuff started to feel safe and grounded to me instead. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the shift was. Maybe it's just time, uh, or a different phase of life or something.
0: Well, we'll probably be able to circle back to that. Um, yeah. okay. So you wind up institutionalized
1: and medicated and then... Uh, then they let me out and they say, you're a good responder to medication. <laughs> uh, and I talk, I switched, I talk to my parents and switch doctors, new doctor. I say different symptoms, come out with different meds. Things get a little worse. Um, this time parents figure out it's not just schizophrenia, it's drug addiction. So they send me off to rehab. After that, I go to like this wilderness program for a year and a half or something. Um, and then I'm kind of lost and drift in the world. I mean, I don't, you know, every detail of the life between now and then. But I started of enter this, uh, this period of like, kind of in recovery, but all screwed up, right? Right, I don't
0: know, where did this happen? When we talked about, you know, I carefully tracked in light of dislocation theory, uh-huh. how you'd get relatively integrated in the program. Okay, sure. In the program. And then you'd become pretty much asymptomatic, take right. yourself off your meds. Yeah. And then as your external world got tenuous, girls and young men in the world not knowing what to do, kind of thing. Yeah. Things would come back. Is that, is that am I remembering this right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. More or less. So, so like inside a like treatment environment, things are like super contained and orderly and you know, like, like there's a structure, right? Uh, Friendship, people. Yeah. Right. People are being personal. I was still pretty fragile in my first 30 day treatment. Um, but by the end of it, I was like, Oh, okay. Those voices were because I was getting high and they're getting quieter now. <laughs> and I should probably stay sober. Um, Year long, like, independent youth at risk wilderness thing uh independent living skills program um much more grounded as I went through that very much a part of that community um very much integrated into that community and felt like meaningful relationships and stuff <clears throat> and yeah was more or less asymptomatic there didn't ever really consider to like using or drinking and when other people were about to graduate and they told me that they were that was sort of like what? was Weird for me. Just for
0: clarity, when you say asymptomatic, we're we're talking both psychosis
1: and oh yeah, yeah. Right. What we would sense. call obsession to to you. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Um yeah, I did have this weird experience uh with my girlfriend at the time, where she had some kind of history with um psychic experiences and was sort of asking me about what it was like when I was crazy and blah, blah, blah. And she kind of touched me. And I felt that whole feeling of like, everyone in LA can hear your thoughts. <laughs> it kind of like this weird darkness spiraling out. And she like jumped back. She literally touched you. To. Yeah, and then literally jumped back and was like, I don't ever want you to do that again. Like, don't, don't bring that out anymore. <laughs> um, so it was, not, it was still there, right? And it still felt dangerous. But in the context of that community, I never had, I didn't really have weird ideas, well, I had weird ideas, but I didn't have like the kind of weird ideas where like ladies watering the lawn, rooting your mind kind of ideas. Um, and yeah, it felt integrated there. Um, once I graduated though, didn't have any community at all, became really, really depressed and isolated and alienated. Um, And started getting into weirder thoughts and then I would sort of hop you know move and I would find some new community try to become integrated there when that fell apart I I would fall apart and then I would just keep hopping around and when you say that you fall apart how bad would it get Uh, the worst that I got was in Farmington Maine just before I met you in the chapter 2 group Um, and that was like uh, living in a small apartment, the, all of the walls are covered with plastic sheets with weird writing on them. Um, you know, hearing scratching on the walls at night and then like drawing little crosses to make that scratching go away and it it would work. Right. I would hear like, and then draw the cross and the only way to sleep. So I had all these crosses all over the wall and this weird shit all over the walls. Um, and just like, you know, not knowing anybody, totally disconnected, all up in my head, thinking I'm the next William Burroughs, <laughs> but also super, super depressed. And I don't want to get high because I know where that takes me. And I don't want to be sober because it's just as bad. And you're not medicated? Not medicated, no. uh went to go see a, a talk doctor, a, psych, a psychologist at that point, and sort of self-analyzed myself for him. And he's like, oh, you're very insightful. <laughs> it was like well gave up on that um yeah so just in a in a bad spot and and i could tell that like not only was it a possibility of descending back into that stuff but it was happening right with the with the scratching and and the and the feeling of being called down the hallway and like that whole sort of sense was coming back and i knew that if if that continued then there wasn't i didn't have a way to stop it right and that's more or less when I met you. Yeah. So at that time, I'm um, seven years
0: clean, uh-huh. six years into the steps. Right. And, you know, pretty much a zealot slash reformer, which I would be for a while. mm mm-hmm. um, very virtually no success was Tom before or after you Tom's before me so almost no success sponsoring people and not for lack of trying uh-huh. so, so the audience should know that you know when I got sober in 95 you couldn't find this sort of weird big-book world that we see everywhere now where people take steps out of the book you saw some lip service to the book. You saw some things called walls, but it was really heavy meeting attendance. And um, I did not do well with that. And so I, I met the late great Don Pritz and things changed. But by the time James comes around, doing 12 Steps Out of the Big Book was this sort of edgy thing with a small community kind of, in Maine, there seemed to be two, two communities, one in Farmington and one in Camden. And we were swimming upstream and we were encountering a lot of uh, adversity. And, but but it, we were tight, we were coherent.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, today I would say we were definitely confusing the map for the territory. And I would love to get your opinion on that in a little bit. But. Sure. So anyway, this is when James comes into my life. And um, <laughs> it was my wife who was working at a, um, a sexual uh, violence emergency services place on the, in part on the um, emergency phone thing. it's a crisis hotline for ISIS hotline was one of the things they did and james was manning the hotline and that's how she met him and he met
1: me Mm -hmm. and at the time you were already going to NA. yep that's right yeah there was a small NA meeting there that was uh just like just like any other NA meeting i've ever been to where it was kind of rough around the edges and people were all really miserable like i was and i fit in just fine Uh, me with my weird ideation and like feeling like I might fall into psychosis any minute I was like right in there right yeah um so you well let's let's say this though when you say that the meeting was edgy uh it was edgy for a couple reasons one was you you cover which is like the big book thing right um not a lot of people working steps and you know at that meeting people were definitely saying that everybody should (laughs) right like this is the way to recover uh and fair enough Um, But there was another reason too, I think, which was you got, y'all had Wanda get better, who was an Al-Anon and she would share the meeting sometimes.
0: And
1: And that was kind of too radical for some people. The Mm -hmm. idea that there would, could be addicts and alcoholics and Al-Anons kind of all recovering from the same stuff and all sharing in the same meeting felt like it was breaking AA in some way.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah. And some of our friends in the big book world, well, including Don Pritz, simply just said, well, we're not an AA meeting. Right. And we were fine with that. Um we were defiant.
1: Right. You know, we didn't
0: we didn't read the usual stuff. We found our own stuff, drew it up. Mm-hmm. Um we didn't do chips. We prayed differently. We mm-hmm. We didn't do birthday anniversary cakes. We didn't right. eat, you know, so we, we, we tried to shake it up in case somebody walked in there, they would be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Which we succeeded. <laughs> I, you know, a lot of times what we just succeeded was driving people away. right? You know, it wasn't necessarily attractive.
1: Right, but it was striking. Yeah. It was like, oh, this is different than what I expected, right? Yeah. And if that sometimes that pisses people off when they walk away and sometimes, like for me, it was like, whoa, and you start paying attention. Mm-hmm. Right. And then that's an opportunity to start hearing things that you never heard before, which for me was like people identifying exactly what was going on in my head in their own story. Like you talking about what it's like to be sober without a solution, felt so like what I was living. And then I could see that you weren't living that anymore, right? And that was super compelling,
0: I thought. But there was huge dissonance for you right, at, right coming in because of your, your upbringing and the, well, and, yeah. and the psychedelics combined, right?
1: Uh, well, the, the God thing was the big slap in the face. You, it was sort of this identification of like, I'm suffering exactly what they've suffered and they're better. And then you all would say like, God is the answer. <laughs> then we go, <laughs> uh, you know, and then I couldn't, it was hard to hear anything else after that. Right. It was just sort of like, oh, fuck. God people. Um, but the first part was so compelling that I would come back for more. And you know, the next week it would be the same thing. Like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the God stuff would hit me again. Right. It's like this weird yo-yo effect of like, it's so good. No, I can't do it. Um, But yeah, so my upbringing, you know, I grew up in a fairly conservative, uh, almost fundamentalist sort of evangelical environment. And, um, you know, bailed out of that before I ever, before I got out of high school, before I got high. Um, And was really, really conflicted about anybody that said God or about anything to do with that. It felt like I was supposed to, I know a lot of people have this experience. They got a bad upbringing with religion uh, or bad taste for it or whatever. And then when we come to recovery and it's spiritual, then, um, then that's a problem because we feel like it's, you're asking me to go back to that thing I don't like. Back to that thing. I, I. We identify it as the same thing. Like if you're saying God and they said God, then you must mean the same thing. The, actually, the psychedelics actually, I think, helped me get through that barrier because the big book said things like, rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence. <laughs> I was like, okay. I've I've seen that. I, all right. <laughs> maybe the, they didn't say that in church. So, like, maybe this is more my, my 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 speed, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and you were into some weird shit then too.
0: Well, right? I still. Am. <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. Right. I not think you were reading a lot of Gurdjieff at the time. I think. Gurdjieff Steiner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember we fed you too much coffee one night and you explained the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Don't get <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. So there's the meeting. There we are. What do you want to know? Where should we go from there? Well, I think some of the drama around the third step would be good. Okay. Yeah. So you you sort of at some point, said that you would help me through the steps. You sort of invited me to be your sponsor, and I took you up on that. Um, And I think steps one and two were pretty quick. You sort of, you know, you're like, you've been reading the big book. You kind of know what it is. You took me through a few things, and I sort of nodded along. But then, as I remember it, there was sort of an assignment to, like, think about the third step for a week. And then we would get together and go out in the woods and pray, something weird like that. Right. Um, and So that week was a very conflicting week for me where it was, I want this. I want to feel better. I want to change. I want to feel like those guys feel. I don't want anything to do with religion or God. What am I supposed to do? Um, and that sort of, you know, ping pong in my brain was going on all week. At some point, I mean, my memory is of this moment is like, changed over time where it has details that can't possibly be true because I remember it's snowing and it's not winter (laughs) like there's like a lot of weird details to it but I do remember walking to the campus library in some kind of weather uh, and it got something in me switched from this like tense like wrestling place to like an open listening place And I just heard the words over and over again, thy will be done, thy will be done, thy will be done, thy will be done. It was like repeating itself for me. And my first reaction was one of resistance, like it's another invasive thought, right? Like another voice that I don't want to hear anything from. Um, Because in my past, thy will be done has always meant um, God tells you what to do and you better fucking do it because you suck, right? (laughs) Which still pretty much true. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, that was the sort of I sort of reacted against that kind of attitude with that sort of phrase. Um, But then I was sort of had this, I guess you call it a vision, I saw kind of the timeline of my life spread out before me. And it was, you know, high or not high, before drugs, after drugs, whatever. Um, My life was a series of like, you know, unfortunate events (laughs) that ended up in these points of decision. And at those points, I would always pick the most selfish thing. Like the only program I had in my head was, um, you know, evaluate the situation for whatever benefits me most and pick that. And then the result was always that I was more alone and more alienated and more restless than before. And then my life would go on on that level. And then I would hit another point of decision and the same program would run. What, what's going to suit me best? What do I like best? What's going to feel good? <clears throat> I would pick that result and I would go that way. And then the same, you know, I would be more alienated, more depressed, blah, blah, blah. So it was a sort of like graduated downward slope of like selfishness and despair. Um, and I realized that that was my will running my life. Right. That's all that I've got is the, I can't, I don't have another program in me. I don't have a way to evaluate situations that isn't that. I will always pick the selfish thing. I will always become more alienated. And like the end of that route is not too far away. It's not looking really good. So the idea that there could be some other will in the universe that was other than that, and that would willingly intervene in those situations was like, oh shit, what a what a gift, what a blessing, right? To be like, hit the point of decision, here comes old. Here comes the old hamster running an iron on its wheel and then, oh, something else could come in and take your life in a different direction that I can't do. Um, all of a sudden that term had like a really different meaning for me and it really hit me as like, fuck, I don't have to die. I don't have to be this way anymore. I don't have to be this kind of human. I can, I can let this thing in and do anything else, which would be better than where I'm at. and I was like crying and I walk in the library and it's like snot coming out my nose and <laughs> lock myself in the bathroom and then just get on my knees. And I can't remember the prayer as you, as you showed it to me, but I'd say something stupid, like, well, not stupid, but something really, really simple and clear. It was just like, I don't know what to do. Help me. Right. Um, and I didn't see angels, but I just felt, clean in the way that I hadn't felt I don't think ever clean and connected in a way that I had never felt before
0: so in your mind that was your third step in the bathroom
1: yeah yeah I don't know that I told you that at the time because you were like hey we're gonna go take your third step we went out in the woods and said a prayer and you're like looking at me like anything happen (laughs) uh I do, but it's It's so interesting. interesting. I don't,
0: you know, if we could, I don't know if this is time to do it, but unpack why you didn't tell me. And yet here's this strange, strange parallel between us, which, you know, is not common in my experience, which Mm -hmm. is this thing really took off at the third step. Yeah. Right. I got, you know,
1: my third step might've been the most powerful thing I did in all of the steps. What was? Why don't we do this? Why don't you tell me what yours was like? I don't know that I've heard. Mine was. Stories. I
0: was just. You know, I went down to New York to meet Don. Yeah. And I was mesmerized, per, pretty much. You know, you gotta understand. I, I had never read the first part of the book. I owned a big book, and I had only read, you know, three stories or something. And so, you know, his presentation and who he was, blah blah blah. It just mesmerized me. Mm-hmm. And then when we took a third step, it wasn't an intense emotional thing, but it was just um, my mind was just so quiet and peaceful. Mm. Mm. And that that sort of—I would even say this—I would say that a certain base level calmness settled into me. Yeah, that really, and I've been through hell numerous times since then. Um, it's never really left. Uh You know, so that's what I come back to Farmington with, like, this sense of just there's something solid here. Right. And I can build on that, you know. Right. And in fact, I I was, it's just my nature probably anyway. I'm just not a rule follower and I'm not a team, you know, I'm not whatever. I don't join well. Yeah. Um, It suddenly I had a conviction of my own right yeah and so i was no i did not feel dependent on mm. human advice and support anymore Right. not that i i don't mean to diminish that but i mean obviously i need that to be happy and yeah. have a life but i didn't feel that that was what was gonna it was this thing i had inside of me now right yeah
1: i think the feeling piece, that like affective feeling piece of that is maybe stronger than we think because like the way at least when Mike Bro tells that your restlessness was pretty epic prior to your (laughs) third step like (laughs) 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 just like barely hanging on huh oh yeah and and running around all the time Mm -hmm. the gym and the meetings and the cigarettes and the food and uh, yeah just right so suddenly be grounded in like inner peace is like Pretty radical, even if it's not like showy, right? It's not like flashy. Yeah, and it's
0: not like peace like we think of it now either. It's not this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, not a, it's not It's not. It's not the Yoga Journal. It's not. It's not. It's, it's. 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 I don't know how to put it. It's this integrated state, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You
1: know. It's the hardest. Th- I feel like the third step and surrender are the hardest things to explain to anybody. I couldn't agree more you can run around in circles all day. I, okay. So that's <laughs> a story about that. Uh, this is working in professional treatment and you know, taking a cohort through up to a third step, talking to him about what it means, what it is. Um, and somehow someone in the room gets it on a really deep level. And he's like, you mean, I don't have to try to be this person anymore. I don't have to prove anything anymore. I can just let go of all that and just be. And I was like, exactly. And he just balls his eyes out and he's screaming and hollering and crying and just like, it's so good. <laughs> he's having it right. He's having it right there. Like just, he just let go of the whole thing. The whole like weird, knotted, twisted up human that he was just went, Woof! <laughs> came out, came out in tears. And, uh, Then someone, I forget what she said, but it was someone else in the group was looking at this like, what the fuck? (laughs) And she was like, but do we really have to be willing to do anything? (laughs) Like, Like, it just, the thing was right in front of her face and she couldn't see it for what it was, right? Mm -hmm. So if that can happen, like, I have no chance of explaining to you what a third step is. You can see it and you can't get it, like... This is like some Gospel of John level misunderstanding. Oh, it is.
0: I mean, it is. It it is like, and so institutionalizing it or getting prescriptive about it or whatever is a fool's errand. And yet, even if it's just you taking a sponsee through it, you're still there. Yes.
1: You're you're not going to get out of the fool's errand. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. I've seen people try to set that up by like putting pressure on someone's life. Like, well, you will know that you've done it if you'll agree to X or Y or Z, yeah,
0: which well, is something
1: that you don't want to do. Right. No. Yeah. And then it just, I don't know, it's not the thing. No. Well, sometimes it's just so obvious and
0: ugly. Right. You've surrendered if you go to Archer's source Living House.
1: <laughs> right, right. It becomes really monetized and like, yeah horrible right because what you get there is like a kind of compliance T- Harry Tebow talks about this you get compliance yeah uh which is in like the worst enemy of surrender because you think you've agreed to do a thing but really you haven't let go of anything at all No, you haven't had what that guy had in that room that sort of crying your way into peace and then i don't care i don't care where that guy goes to sober living Or if he even goes, right? Like, you tell me what God wants you to do at that point.
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And what seems interesting is there's something in those kinds of, that kind of thing, Surrender, is that the exterior and the interior, they don't have to be at odds anymore. Right. I'm not being somebody for you to like. Yeah. Well, I hate myself. All right. No, I don't have to do that anymore. Right yeah if, if anything, I think that whole kind of thing has just gotten worse in society in the digital age. I think that's another thing that that, yeah, that we should be mindful of is I came up you know a lot of people are saying this era starts in ninety five with the popularity of the internet, yeah so actually, I got clean
1: in I. What year? 94? 94. I don't know. 94. I was 2001. You said you were seven years at that time. So that gives you 94 is the math. Is that true? That's when I dropped out of high school.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess it is 94. Wow. God, I can't believe I'm unclear I'm about that. But anyway, um, so you and I, were coming from a different time. Like... Uh, You know, you're you're in the internet era, but it's still, we're still Gutenberg people. Sure. So for us, you know, mucking around in a book again and again and again and again, we were kind of built like that already. Right. Whereas I think a lot of these folks, books are foreign, especially strangely written books from 1939. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So
1: if I recall correctly, you enjoyed writing a fourth step because you like to write. Yep. That sort of fit my, my way of being. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, but, and you got relief, but. I mean, basically it seems like pretty quickly you, you became asymptomatic of all that stuff that was going on in the apartment Mm -hmm. and it never came back. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And did the fear of it coming back stay with you for a long time?
1: There was, so after fourth, fifth, sixth, seven, I enter this phase of like, like nothing I've experienced ever before. Maybe it goes a month, maybe two, I don't know. But there's like, I could not a resentment if I tried. I couldn't be afraid of anything if I tried. I couldn't want anything. It was like, um, I get, I I had also sort of given up writing like other than my fourth step after, after fourth step, I was like, yeah, before this, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to school for creative writing. I'm going to be a creative writer. I'm going to be William Burroughs. I'm going to be this weird eclectic like guy, um, some literary genius and like that all got unraveled in in step four and was like, I'm not going to write anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do in the fall when I have to take a creative writing class, but (laughs) I'm done. Uh, and was just in this state of acceptance that like, wouldn't be unbroken. There was, there was one time where I was like slipping out of it for a second and worrying about myself and this bumblebee flew into my forehead. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, Oh, oh, that's right. I'm right here. Um, so I wasn't worried about anything for a minute. Right. Uh, well, two months is a while.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite a state of being to be in for months.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Um, and here again, we're the same. I, I could say from my third step for
1: eight months. I don't think I had a bad day for eight months. Right. It's just like, here's the sunshine again and the birds in the morning and a cup of coffee. What? I, I got yeah. no complaints. Yeah. Right. Um. So I did, I wouldn't say I was afraid of that stuff coming back in, but once it, you know, once that glow or whatever started to fade and I got into the, you know, everyday life and thinking about what I got to do for homework and what the job needs and, uh, does this girl like me and that kind of stuff, that sort of routine, then, um, you know, then I was also like researching different spiritual practices and stuff. And there were some that I thought were kind of off limits to me because I didn't want to crack the egg again. Um, you know, finding out, you know, Bill and everybody's doing acid. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> 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 right. I, didn't I mean, Bill Wilson in, the, in the gang. Um, so there were things like that where I didn't, I didn't necessarily want radically transformative experiences that would like mess with my brain. I just wanted to be in that space again, that, that feeling of acceptance. And when I was astray from it or I was tightened up in something, I wanted to let go again. Right. So that was kind of where I was at at that point. Um, Do you ever feel forlorn for that feeling? Yeah. I thought I did something wrong. I thought I, I thought I ruined it. When it sort of faded, I thought, I, I, what did I do? Why are you taking this from me? <laughs> right? I got really, like, complex and, like, victim-y about it. And also, like, oh, I'm ru- I did something wrong. Like, guilty. Yeah. Like, which only made it worse, right? You're only further from the feeling when you're doing all that. And I remember talking to Mike Bro about it. And he said, oh, no, everybody goes through ups and downs, dry periods and high periods or whatever.
0: Yeah, but if you're like me, it's never
1: come back. Not like that no there'll be moments where like i'm really got my you know ego tied up around something and then i go oh i'm not in control of that and there's that moment of like thank god right but um or there'll be moments like i did centering prayer for many years and there'll be moments of like feeling like i've been able to let go of quite a bit of things in that space of 20 minutes you know if i don't take a nap but if you're like me, it's
0: still not the genesis. It's
1: not the thing, dude. It's not. <laughs> and I
0: had, I had a taste of something really comparable back in my using. You know, I read this book called Meditations on the Tarot, and I got really, really high off that book and had all these spiritual experiences and became a nice person, really. Huh. And then I lost it. <clears throat> and then I had that period of time right in the steps again. And it, it's taken me years to come to some sort of terms with it that that it's, a, that's just a tremendous gift. But mm-hmm. maybe you're not meant to live the rest of your days like that. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't want to diminish the other spiritual things that have happened to me. You know, I'm appreciative of all these different flavors of things, mm-hmm. but man, and and you know what? If you haven't had it, you probably don't believe it. You know, what's funny about resistance recovery now is I'm, I'm really, I want to be open to people for whom that's never happened, may never happen. Yeah, never. Right, right. And I think there are reasons for all that, and it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really, it makes you feel kind of, it's, it, it actually has a little seed of alienation in it. Uh, other people, if they haven't felt that, they don't understand it.: Yeah.: Yeah.
1: You can never explain it to somebody. Not really. And if you talk about it, you sound like a nut. <laughs> yeah yeah. yeah. And yeah you can
0: you're be, kind of looking for people to have it too. Yeah, so,
1: you want to spread it around. Yeah, a wild thing. That is interesting. Um, So I think I don't know. Think things that helped me with that were I read some Oxford Group book. Oxford Group. I don't know if I should say this, but they're the people that came before AA. Bill and everybody sort of comes out of the Oxford Group to start Twelve Steps. Um, but so I, and I started researching that and looking into that early on. It's like where did this experience come from? How did we get it right? So there was some Oxford Group sermon that was like. I forget the verse or even what gospel it's in but um there's a transfiguration and they see jesus standing next to the prophets or whatever and then they're like the disciples are like we want to set up camp here and live here and the answer yeah. is
0: like, no
1: <laughs> you can't live here And <laughs> is that's really the metaphor i was like okay that is literally the metaphor for this right, right. literally a metaphor um, but it was like I am in this thing. I want to live here forever, and it's like, no, dude, you gotta. You can have that, but you gotta move on and live a life, right? It almost feels like a
0: near-death experience in that sense, or a parallel to one. Uh. You know, they don't want to go back. And mm. Jesus says, "Yeah, dude, you gotta go back." Or God, <laughs> like, no, I don't want to go back. No, you gotta go back.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. It is
0: like that. Yeah. Hmm. So you kind of touched on this sort of thing that I want to get into, which is, so folks, the point of all this, one of the main points is that James has what, you know, an earlier version of the DSM would have called a substance induced psychosis recurrent, Mm -hmm. meaning the symptoms come back in the absence of the drugs. And it comes back through emotional, psychological stressors. And what we're, what we're, the point here is here's a guy who, you know, did step work. And I'm not saying this is for everybody, but this is a case of somebody doing that and becoming completely asymptomatic. Actual psycho spiritual healing of the, in my opinion, of the first order. So it does happen. Um, Happens quite a bit. Right. So the thing that James was just alluding to is that you know he's a researcher and we share this, and we both got lost or or probably arguably still lost in this. You know, um, studying all this stuff around AA and the Oxford Group and the old Discover Tom Powers, and we read William James and we find out all the stuff that the pioneers were into and yada yada yada, and. You know, I, I, people often hear me say this, I fault the recovery community for not doing that research. Um, however, you do that kind of research, and it leaves you changed. And so I think what you and I have done, more personally than any other way, is that we've sort of deconstructed uh, the 12 steps, the 12-step movement. Okay. In light of our experience, in light of our research. Is it, right. Is that fair? I,
1: well, I guess it depends how you mean deconstructed.
0: Well, I mean, you, you go into meetings around the country, or you listen to tapes, or you, you even read some stuff, and then you've got all your own experience and all this research, and then yeah. it's not you're interpreting it my, my, the way I interpret it's you know constantly changing it's changed a lot uh-huh. so what what kind of changes did all that research I mean what do you what do you how do you yeah, yeah. how do you see your experience now in light of all that oh
1: uh wow so that's intuitive. it's a big ass question There's like a couple of like nested questions in there Yeah, Let me just say, like, why why did I start reading stuff Um, and see where that gets us? One is, like, I mean, I remember the first time when I got to Step 11, you took me to the library and found Varieties of Religious Experience and handed it to me and said, check this out and read it. And that set off a whole chain of, like, all right, there's these books out there that talk about this stuff. And they're outside of AA and they're... You know, people have, this is a, a thing that happens to people that don't even work steps It's <laughs> just like spontaneously sometimes happens to people. Um, and so there's all these other traditions and people talking about it and we can explore right it opened up the world of like exploring stuff. Uh, the other thing was, I think, I think it was Mike bro that brought in Gresham's law and AA into into a meeting one night and we read it. And it, if you haven't read that people watching at home, um, it is basically a treatment of the history of AA that tries to explain why, why there are meetings where people are not working steps and getting better. Right. Why are there meetings where people are just sort of showing up and being miserable, sharing their misery together, and then coming back the next week um, instead of people like actively working these steps and having some kind of experience. Right. Um, And that really sparked an interest in me. and like, okay, because uh, that was that was a question like once the, the first there's a lot of things that happen when you have that kind of experience that like we did with step three, if you have some kind of a spark of awakening, um, then you go, where did that come from? <laughs> How did that happen? Uh, it doesn't seem to be the direct result of the things that I did. And yet the things that I did gave rise to it. Right. And there's a history to the things that I did. They came from somewhere. Um, there's other people who have had this experience through this work or something like it. And so we follow, we follow our chain back to the Oxford group um, and then into the traditions, different traditions of Christian um, mysticism or whatever, right? Spiritual experience. Um, And so looking into Oxford group and then more broadly at different uh, spiritual experiences and traditions around that was like, I mean, the value of that was like, we're not alone. We're not just this weird little group in the basement in, in the Ming woods. <laughs> we're like, <Sorry>. no. <laughs> yeah, right. but like, this is a common feature of humanity and people talk about it all the time. And it's like, it appears in all kinds of religions and cultures. And I feel connected to something bigger than me and in, in, in a different way. Right. And I can contextualize my experience. Um, and in ways that i think are were useful to me as i was going along the business of trying to live as if that experience which is now behind me were still true right like now that i'm not in i'm acceptance all the time now that i'm like in the world right how do i how do i approximate that kind of acceptance in the tasks of my daily life um oh well here's this thing out of some buddhist scripture that says this i'm like oh that really resonates with me in how i'm trying to handle this relationship or whatever um so it, it felt like there was all this wisdom from people who had walked this or similar paths um throughout time that was like you know useful and useful and useful and made me think differently about it but also made me feel like i could apply it in ways that i didn't know how to before um I mean, like in some way, at least in like a crass way, it's just like something different to talk about in the meeting, <laughs> right? Yeah. You tell your own same story a hundred million times, and then like- Well, you know, I mean,
0: there's also the, the joy of like, you know, reading something out of Merton and going,
1: oh yeah, I experienced
0: that. Right. That really, not only is that reassuring, but it makes you ex- respect your own experience that much more.
1: Yeah. Oh, it is true. Yeah. It did happen to me, and it is real. Right. It's been validated again and again. Right. I guess, you
0: know, so for me, the thing, the dissonance really started with this, and it actually led to me and Mikey having this thing for quite a while. Huh. And there were these people that we kept encountering who, you know, were interested in what we were doing and attracted to what we we're doing, and they started doing
1: it with us, and it would just end poorly. Mm. Um, they would take steps, and it would go
0: um sometimes they'd get some relief, but then yeah. they would start engaging in like really destructive behaviors that just made your jaw drop, like not even getting high, just other stuff right um or they simply weren't getting the effect of doing it mm-hmm. weren't really getting relief. You know, and so there's this this part of the book, and so this is where this weird dissonance started, where Bill says, there are people who cannot and will not. Now, I'm almost ashamed to admit this, because I immediately run to, well, that phenomena we see right there are the cannots. Sure. They'll never get it. Was that? They're
1: not capable of getting it yeah and
0: they're not capable of being honest with themselves, and you know, I knew enough about psychology then that maybe this is some kind of personality disorder or uh-huh. psychopathy and and that I stayed there for a little bit, and you know there are certainly I think I ran across people for whom that analysis probably applies <laughs> yeah I met that guy yeah I met if you know, a few like him, but then this started happening. it took me a while to get there, and I started thinking wait a minute, you know, if somebody approaches this and it doesn't work for any reason, then saying things like they didn't want it enough or they weren't ready yet or they left something out of the fourth step. Now, this evolution I'm talking about wasn't right away. I've only grown into this over time. But in effect, what you're doing is you're blaming the victim. Uh, You're saying... It's your fault that you're not getting better. Right. And so the, that the seed of that started really disturbing me. And it sort of lived with me for years. It, 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 it troubled me for years.
1: And I could say, yeah,
0: there are some people that aren't ready, and there are some people who, you know, are psychopathic or whatever. But then there are these other people who, whatever reason, this is just not, This just not going to work. It doesn't work. It's not it's not meant to be. Um, <clears throat> it's
1: not their way or
0: something. Yeah, and so the reasons why that might be and this and that, you know, that's that that answering that question has kept me going for quite a while.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um and that kind of does lead us all the way to resistance recovery. Right. So, you know some of the things that I'm more confident about now well, there's a couple ways of looking at this. One is um I don't think the twelve this is sort of deconstructing the twelve steps I don't think the twelve steps treat trauma right ah uh, okay, yeah, right so I think it um, I think when people write about trauma in a fourth step, and a thing we make sure they do in the fourth column is not you know, don't own it around the victimization. What did you do with it post that uh-huh. you, you knew you were in a bad neighborhood or you preferred drugs to your own safety or whatever your thing is. Sure. Um, that, that, that affords a measure of insight, which can be very valuable, but I do not believe that it's healing. I guess yeah, I would they, uh, there are people that have had, you know, if you got, if you got brutalized, savaged in the alley, trying to buy the drugs, yeah, your body still carries. Right. Okay. Right. Your nervous system still carries the damage, PTSD, if you will. Right. Of that. Right. I mean, that's just one example. And then if you start looking at people that have had, you know, trauma histories, then questions of personal accountability and responsibility become very,
1: um, They're different. Uh They're not, they're not the same for those people. Right. I guess I would want to, I would want to nuance that a little bit. Maybe I'm getting too deep into the weeds. Let me know. Um, But I see like, I see pieces of people's traumatic experience or like layers of it that get relief and other layers that are persistent like this. um, Somebody's uh, I don't want to, say anybody but i've seen people you know recover from um childhood sexual abuse and um they write some kind of piece of inventory that changes their understanding and relationship to the perpetrator and they come to some kind of place like you know i can understand but i'll never i'll never trust that person (laughs) because they're not trustworthy but i'm in relationship to that history of abuse and my own experience of it and to that human being that there's all this like what i would call forgiveness but it's just the release of that resentment and all the tension around that goes away right? Yeah, I've, I've seen that too there's this big relief but and that doesn't mean that there aren't still lingering effects from that history that could be like ptsd symptoms or whatever else that i think well that's
0: what that, that's taking us back to it doesn't heal that so right right
1: but it it, it, the part there's like two elements of that history that are the problem one is the the stuff that i'm still doing to myself about it that's true and then there's an embodied experience of it
0: that's that and there's my point so the, the experience is um i've you know i'll use myself as an example i finally came to realize that the extent of my trauma you know I meet criteria for PTSD. I have a startle response. I have a narrow emotional range. Mm. I have, um, real issues with trust that only seem to have gotten worse as I've aged. (laughs) So, um, and that's my point. Right. So deconstructing the steps, it does not do anything with the body. Right. As such, one of the dangers of it is it's a disembodied, it tends towards disembodiment. Okay. And not entirely, but just hear me out. So, um, you know, I have whatever modern American life that, you know, dislocated life, this is another piece of this whole new way of thinking. Yep. And I experienced some trauma and I, or stress, I think even chronic stress, so I'm just not happy, and I try to regulate my affect by going into my brain. We know people, trauma and stress do this. You try to manage these unmanageable feelings by thinking about them. Uh And for some of us, we go up there and that is not a cool place to be. This wasn't a cool place to be. This is not a cool place to be. (laughs) So so we high, right? Right. And and we get relief. Mm -hmm. But you see now you're, you're even disembodying further. And, you know, it varies with the drugs you take, you know, but generally speaking. So then you, out of desperation, come into recovery or some spiritual modality. This is another strange thing. And we seek healing there. So sometimes this is 12 steps, but it could be yoga. it It could be psychedelics. It could be somatic therapies. It could be Buddhist meditation. And we get relief, but here's the thing that seems really, really perilous. If this stuff in the body is still bad enough or powerful enough, your your spirituality can become a constant quest in a sense you're still disembodied. It's reading the books, going to the churches. It becomes a very this kind of spirituality, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking uh, currency of spiritual ideas in lieu of spirituality, because when we think about that thing that we had for that period of time, that yeah. was, hey, was fully present in the body.
1: Yes, right. It was whole that way. Right, right. That's the kind of thing that a bumblebee on the forehead brings you back to, not the yeah. kind of thing that reading some treatise on right. Like, Or notice something something. in the big book that you've never seen before. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right, right. It's a very different state than that. Yeah.
0: And so what I've seen, you know, so I do see people like you described, but I also see people have trauma histories and they come into AA and God's will and accountability and your part in it, Uh and they can't even they can't even begin to get traction right the door is slammed shut out the gate mm-hmm. and then when you start kind of looking at the demographics then it's it looks to be called a, a, a correlation mm-hmm. less women less poor people less minorities
1: oh sure right because there's more trauma in those other and the underrepresented areas of AA yeah right yeah Right.
0: So that's just this sort of one piece of deconstruction. So what I said earlier about the map and the territory, I don't, I wish I could remember Dean's name, so I I owe him an apology. Um, But there's there's this guy who wrote this book. He writes books, good writer. And I, I heard him on a podcast. And he said, they got into this, and I'm kind of taking liberties with it my own take. But he said, he said, remember, all of these things are about enchantment. He's talking about spiritual experiences. These enchanted states, which have an affective quality. Mm -hmm. Things are, you know, beautiful, or they're deep, they're rich, they're, they're dripping with meaning, they're, there's all of that. It's aesthetic, really, right? And he says, literalism, cynicism, Skepticism, fear, those things just cause, enchantment can't withstand the presence of those Uh things. Uh, But then they get in this conversation about maps versus territories. So if we said recovery is a territory, or uh, maybe it's not recovery, addiction, let's say addiction is a territory, and the 12 steps are a map, you really think about it the 12 steps you start unpacking them they're they're, they're not only they're a map they're a, they're a human anthropology they're making strong claims about what the human being is there's an implied cosmology there's a prescriptive path there's an orthopraxis mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's a literal document that no matter how you interpret it it's got the same number of pages and all that right right, right. and what he seems, what I did—I don't know if he said this or not—but if you, and, if we're in a community where we all really start buying into the map, like really buy into the map, then the enchantment can kind of feed off each other. I'm not saying there's a truth to the map, okay, but I'm saying we start seeing red threads through our experiences and. So and we, and we gather together, and some juices flowing,
1: and yeah, yeah. Because that but, buy into the map sort of holds at bay that skepticism and cynicism, and etcetera. Yeah. Right. Okay. And
0: you know, I think you and I also know the difference between the literalist with the big book and the and the artist with the big book. Yeah. And so we we buy into that and 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 the enchantment and the the, the truth of it because there's truth in it is really powerful. It just you know it can cause this, you know, Uh it's generative. But then there's the territory. And the territory is, you know, not only people with trauma but or minorities, the territory is also, you know, the person who can get Buddhism. But they can't really get any kind of narrative that talks about sin. Right. Selfishness. You know, you can
1: you can yeah, do yeah. all these
0: clever things to bring them together, but it's yeah. you know what I mean? And they're, they're, so so you read somebody like James Hillman or this George Farrar guy, and they make this very interesting point. They say there are spiritual experiences available to James
1: that aren't available to Tom. Oh, that's interesting. Because they would say the spiritual saw- experience isn't just like like the cultural context that I can accept it in is not just a window dressing. It's, it's part of the thing itself.
0: It's part of the thing itself, but also even more, you could even make it more individual. Like some people have better eyesight. Some people have better hearing. Uh, okay. And right. like, you know, some people are, are tone deaf to anything evangelical. Right. They just right. can't hear it. They just can't hear it. Whereas somebody else like can drop into mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I can't drop into mindfulness. Right, right, right. So so the territory is littered. See, so so I guess what 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 I'm saying is, is that you and I have spiritual experiences based on the kind of beings we are as as individuals, and your context, you're right, the context we're in. And those experiences aren't available to other people right furthermore they have experiences that aren't available to us right and then but then when we get together and we all buy the map at least a lot of us are having kind of a family resemblance experience our third step sounds similar but they're still not identical right there's a family resemblance recognizable as such right yeah and so i think that there's i just think that we need to attend to the territory
1: so let me take us a step back from this because we we've gone like we've got way into the territory here (laughs) um the first kind of shocking thing that we we move we made in this set of the conversation is to say that the steps don't work for everything right um so by deconstructing the steps what you meant is like to see its limitations and to see those limitations in a broader context, right? Right. Right. Um, so that's like, that's going to be hard for a lot of people to hear this idea that the steps don't work for everything. I remember at one point, uh, (laughs) like an asshole, I asked you if you were writing inventory and you said, uh, the the inventory doesn't work for everything. And I thought you lost your fucking mind. (laughs) Uh, And it's only much later that I've seen things in myself and in other areas of life where I'm like, Oh yeah, well, inventory is not like the Swiss army knife of spirituality that does all things right. It has a limited set of range of things that it can do and expecting it to do more than that, uh, is to misunderstand it and even abuse it. But you and I both started in a place, um, where, yes, the map is the territory. This is the way to do it. We might be having variations, but it's the same thing and anybody can have it. They're just being resistant idiots <laughs> and they need to get this thing. And we went out and we said, get it, get it, get it. We, we went out to other meetings to tell them that this is the way and, you know, we yeah, right. Um, not everybody liked that, but no. this is a, this we we can say it was mixed results. We can't say that it was right. it was mixed results. For for me, that it was something that caught my attention and it got a lot of buy-in and got me a recovery. Yep. Yeah. Because, oh, this is different. Oh, that's the message. Oh wow, I can I can have this thing, right? Have, if it didn't stand out, I wouldn't have got it. Um so what we're talking about now is a long distance from the 12 steps are the thing they're the only thing you need. Oh, that was the other thing is like throughout this growth, there's a sense of like, well, these tools, the spiritual toolkit solves my problem with, you know, being a crazy man. They should be able to solve my problem with being frustrated in my love life or, you know, trying to being worried about finding a job. Um, and they often do that, but they, they don't always, right? There's a sense of like returning to those tools again and again and expecting a particular kind of them making me feel better um, instead of really, you know, using them as an opportunity to see something about myself that I couldn't otherwise.
0: Or recognizing that it's just not the tool for the job.
1: It's not a tool for the job. Or it's not up to the job. Right. 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 Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a big deal in itself, right? Um, I think some people will be threatened by that statement. Probably not
0: this audience so much. Right, so, okay. you know, if I were to characterize the 12 steppers in this audience, and they're only a percentage, right. many of them had very powerful experiences. Mm-hmm. And they are at a place now, though, you basically just described it. Yeah, they're they're sensing that there has to be some kind of growth or shift in perspective or more inclusive or something. Um, There are other people here who, and so some of those people, you know, are the psychedelic crowd. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of those people are the trauma crowd. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there are a lot of people here, you know, I've certainly interviewed one, who they really, you know, they've had they've had and seen such bad stuff or had such negative experiences with steps that they never they never got a foothold. But they right. want to have a recovery community and so they're kind of attracted to the dislocation theory or to the that Right. So it's a very interesting audience that way.
1: Cool. Yeah. I would have been threatened by this message, you know. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it would have kind of spooked me because all I had was these steps and these practices and, you know, run them into the ground. If I write it the inventory 15 times, eventually I'll change my behavior or something. Right. Um, Yeah. Right. But it, you know, that's kind of like a self-flagellation thing. That's not going to pan out very well really in all cases. So, all right. So that's, that's, a, I just was checking with that to see like how big of a bomb we were dropping on people to say that the steps have limitations, right? Yeah. Right. Um, Bill Wilson called them a spiritual kindergarten. And I used to think that was cause he didn't know how to use them properly. <laughs> right. Me too. Yeah. Right. He didn't so, know, he didn't know the, the, the
0: voltage of his own
1: weapon. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but what do you do with that then? You got, you got steps that do something pretty good, pretty strongly in some cases, not in all cases, um, for a certain kind of people who approach it a certain kind of way, it can have a life transforming thing. But most people who have addiction are not going to be able to get that for one reason or another, either through trauma or life history or cultural preference situation or just like they don't get it because it's now most exposure to the steps is couched in meeting attendance stuff. Um, so they can't, they can't be the thing that gives everybody a spiritual awakening. And then we're faced with, where do we go from there? Well,
0: we're faced with a, a massive problem that seems to be getting, well, is getting worse. Um, since the quarantine overdoses have gone up 42 percent mm. that's st- that's staggering that's huge numbers right um, i mean i i appreciate your point about not being threatened by this although i i i wonder about that i wonder about had that, had we had a different context might we not see it differently i mean so I don't think the steps are the only game in town. Right. Um, so I, you know, like the perennially controversial topic of psychedelics on RR and I post things, articles that are both pro and con were critical anyway. Um, there are people who said they can only break through in the steps with that. So there are steps and that there are other people that had fairly weak step experiences and went the psychedelic route and felt that it took them much closer to their old drug-addicted ways, so they back off. Sure. Right. Um, but what I think is certainly undeniable is that there are some people on there for whom it's true. That sure. It was, yeah. Um, then there's some of the trauma folks, and they tend to be women, and they're, um, hey, I want to say goodbye to Jessica. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Bye,
1: Jess. I love you. Bye. I love
0: you. Um, and so they're finding their way into modalities that are going to do for them what the steps didn't. So, you know, I think we're getting to a place where we're more sophisticated and we can't say, we're not saying either or anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that what is getting h- highlighted is the things that don't work pretty much across the board and are egregiously exploitative of addicts. Um, so there's, there's family resemblance between the steps and the Buddhism and the trauma stuff and uh, all of this and that. And, and that's, that can give us a different way of talking about this. Um, and I think dislocation theory actually speaks more to that because if, if we, if we were to put that, those few months we had as sort of like the the once and done integrated state or whatever. Yeah. You're seeing something about you're not in the stress response. There's no urgency to go or be somebody that you're not. Mm-hmm. Tenor of your relationships is very good. You're receptive. You're responsive to other people. And, you know, so that's all speaking to what Alexander would call integration. And and he's saying that that, you know, historically that's been a human phenomenon. And it can be more of a cultural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Cultures can be. See, here's the other thing. We're at a point now where we are so dislocated we have this really strong association between spirituality and trauma. The two practically are practically dance partners for us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. You know, so it's like when James writes, you know, remember reading once born and twice born. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember thinking, well, who the fuck are these once born people? I don't know. I don't, I didn't even know <laughs> what they are talking about. Really, right. right? Yeah. To me, the only way to get a spiritual footing is through alcoholism and divorce and combat and cancer and all this what james is pointing to is very much what alexander's talking about he's saying there are there have been these cultures many most if probably where you know you don't have a word for religion mm-hmm. chopping wood and hunting and making love and, and yeah it's all spiritual right and you don't you have shared spiritual values and um there's a place for everybody throughout the life cycle, children to the very old. The worst thing they could do to you is shun you. And so those are the once born people. They're born into a spiritual thing that works for them. It, it, it gives them an identity, a communal identity, an individual identity. They live out their years. You know, it's inherently conservative in the sense of conserving, mm-hmm. right? Rooted in tradition and all that. And that has become increasingly, it's disappearing. And it's most disappeared here. So we don't, we don't get much nourishment from our neighbor. We don't know who our neighbors are. We're afraid right. of our neighbors. Right. We'd rather we than who our great grandparents were. You know, marriage and parenting and friendship, it's all getting harder. Yeah. So spirituality, is like whoa, oh, yeah, spirituality is going to heal this. Well, yeah, there's truth to that, but we're acting, we're, we're 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 taking this way that you and I live as some sort of baseline, or some sort of normative thing, mm-hmm. and it's not right. And that's why we became addicts. And those cultures, they don't have addiction, right,
1: right, right. Well, it puts it puts us in a difficult spot, which is we catch a recovery, we have our moment in the sun of feeling integrated and connected to everything. And then, the, you know, slowly re pulling ourselves back into this disintegrated society and living life, as I say, like you're just going on with the business of living and it's with all its problems. And, um, I'm, I may go off on a tangent here. So tell me, pull me back in if you need to, but, um, the early, chapter two meeting that we were a part of was mistaking the map for the territory. As you say, it was mistake. It was saying like this book and these steps and these, that's the thing. Um, and it did do that magic trick that you were talking about of um, reminding me of the feeling of the, that couple months. months. When we were doing that with the book, when we were reading the book and then talking about our experiences with it and then, you know, connecting with someone in the room who either didn't believe it or was really wanting it or there was some kind of energy there, then that thing would like wake back up inside me, right? Um, not in the same form, but it would be this like, there would be a connection there, like a purpose. Enchantment. Yeah, it it, it would happen in that room, right? And we, we were inviting people into it. And sometimes that, sometimes it took. Um, but, you know all the little groups like that that i've seen have fallen apart
0: and what alexander would say it's because the pressures outside of that building are too great right he would say that that works because it integrates you. right that's why it's so that's why spiritual modalities work but he would say as the problem is is the, the world you leave where the world you go into after the meeting or after the yoga retreat or after the ayahuasca yes. session, whatever, is increasingly dislocated. Right. So these kids now, they're swimming in waters that were way worse than the ones we were swimming in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you re- the, so the, the really the looming problem is how, you know, it's not a matter of like, it's not a conservative movement that we have to go back to the 1950s. Right. Okay but it's a move that how do you rebuild community consciously? Uh So what are those elements? Right. And I don't think you're going to come up with 10-step inventory. I think what you're going to come up with is um, communities of people getting out of the stress response um, through somatic means, um, being inclusive. We were right about that at chapter two, being broadly inclusive of the people that aren't like us. Right. Um, but also having a, a, an activism, or if you will, a 12th step that extends far beyond taking somebody through the big one. Right. Because it's trying to foster integration
1: broadly wherever you're, wherever you're in the world. Right. By, by volunteering at the pet shelter and by serving food to the homeless and by whatever volunteer. I even think
0: it's, it gets more radical than that, like
1: having yeah. a conversation. Uh, right. I think that's actually subversive at this point. <laughs> right. Just talking to somebody about what you really think and feel. Yeah, or I mean, reading an article and talking about it. I mean, that's... That. Being, being vulnerable. Right. Being vulnerable. Being exactly. vulnerable with somebody... Who, and taking the risk that, that uh, that'll pan out.
0: Very hard to be vulnerable when you're scared. Very hard to be vulnerable when it's impossible, right. when you're stressed or traumatized.
1: Right, right.
0: I mean, I think to answer your question, I think there's an outline and a place to go in dialogue and practice and experimentation. I mean, I think, I think it's all there. Yeah, and that's kind of what resistance recovery is about in a way is let's hear from these voices
1: that aren't yours. Right. So let me, this is like, um, maybe this isn't the question that would come up from the people that are already down with resistance recovery, but I can, you know, putting my big book guy hat on, um, I can imagine people having a certain, uh, well, resistance to this idea because it's like, well, I can't fix the whole world. You're telling me the world is broken. That's why I'm having trouble. Uh, I don't have any control over that. So I should just stay here and focus on, focus on my little, my little me. Right. (laughs) And, and it's, and, and what you're saying is like, uh, it's not that simple. Right.
0: I'm saying that's not even viable.
1: That's not even viable. Right. Okay. Um, the 12, so this is, this is a piece I'm trying to get us to a place of deconstructing a different element of 12 step culture, which is this piece of, um, I work my steps. I have my God. I do my inventory. I keep my side of the street clean. Uh, We don't talk politics in meetings. Um uh the best thing for the new guy is not to tell him that the world's fucking him over. <laughs> it's to tell him he needs to take responsibility for himself. Right? Sure. Um so there's that that's sort of like a I don't know, an ethos inside of uh yeah. AA and Twelve Steps that this is this is now saying this is deconstructing that. Right. And saying, No, we need something different than that. But it's it's I don't know how to I don't like I don't know how to articulate that difference very well, other than to say, well, we consider things more broadly or something goofy like that. But it's not like, um, I don't know. Like, if I've got a new guy, a guy who wants to get sober and he's asking me for help, I don't know how to boil down the resistance recovery message in, in, into, like, you know, the 30-second soundbite of here's what you need to know right now. I do know well, how to do I, it. I don't steps, know if it's
0: right? even, I mean, I don't know if that's... I mean, what I've been doing, I did for the last four years is I took dislocation theory and I operationalized it as a treatment tool. Yeah. I contextualized it. So, you know, you can, and I've done it, you can really show that the etiology of addiction is, you know, in the environment and that RID is dislocation and spirituality is integration. Yep. And you can show how there's also individual sin. There's there's definitely something wrong with human nature. But you can also show how societies, when they get really sick, they reward and encourage the very worst things about ourselves. Right. Namely, greed, competition, and avarice. Right. And I, I have found that this isn't
1: confusing, that this actually they get charged over that. Do they get charged? So like, does it run counter though to this, um, to the value runs- of the fourth column? Do you know what I mean? Like this value of like um, it versus like,
0: no, um, it doesn't because it's, you still have to own your shit.
1: Yeah. Um, that can be hard to parse. I feel like, right. Like- it can be, but I, I,
0: it's not as hard as you might
1: think. So, um,
0: you know, cause otherwise you're left with this narrative. I had a good family. My parents loved me. I was upper middle class. My parents were college educators. I always assumed that I was going to go to college. But I'm such a selfish prick. That I, I abused all that. And this is where I wound up. You see, what you're doing with that narrative is you're taking that addict. You're saying that, that addict is pathologically and abnormally different. Mm-hmm and you are saying, you're giving a very Bill Wilson, AA, AA I would say, not NA, message that there is a normal world out there and you are maladjusted to it, come with me and do these steps and you too can have the mortgage and the wife and the kids. You take that message into a prison and they're like, fuck you, in a way, Mm -hmm. because what they're hearing is you're saying, you're, you basically effaced multi-generational poverty. You have faced your parents' and grandparents' alcoholism. You have faced the childhood sexual abuse. You have faced the combat. right? You've made all that normative. Uh-huh. So, you know, I have a lot of clients these last four years that are young men who are, um, you know, completely... Um, apathetic and I wouldn't say depressed I would say apathetic and what I mean by that is they're they they have no giddy up, they have no passion they've they've lived lives on psychiatric medication digital devices Um, they're they're, they're losing social intelligence. They don't, they don't make eye contact. They don't attend to the tone of voice. They don't shake hands firmly. And it looks to me with some of them, your only chance is to talk to them about the effects of Adderall and the effects of mm-hmm. digital addiction and porn addiction you need to speak directly to their experience of how they got that way. And then they might become a little interested in recovery. All right. All right. So like with them with a big
1: book too heavily, they're like, what the fuck is this? Right. Okay. So to my point of like, what do you tell the new guy in the first 30 seconds? Um, it's like a totally different spiel. It's like, Instead of saying, like, you need God, you need other addicts, and you need the truth, which is, that's a formulation from Tom Powers, which I think is great, right? Like, the first yeah. thing you need to know is, like, this is the stuff that's going to sustain Wait, you. Like,
0: you know, I'm worried that we're going to run out of time in five minutes. So if we do, we... Oh, yeah,
1: okay. We well, want to just go no, in no, and wrap Let's those? keep going for a second, though. Like, Powers said God and what were the truth and what? So Tom Powers has this little thing called, like, what to hang on to. Right. And it's like three things. And it's basically like the, the, the piece that you would tell someone if you, they're brand new and you've got just a minute, three minutes maybe to tell them what they need to do. And right. Hang on to God. So some kind of spirituality, you but better, you better get that and hang tight because um, you can't do this yourself. Hang on to others. You're going to need the fellowship. You're going to need other people like you. You need to integrate into something and hang on to the truth. Like you got to stop lying and get rid of all that. Um, and See what I would do with that is I would
0: start with truth, uh-huh. and so that's why that's I think at the heart of what I'm getting at is the truth of the addiction has to do with you know the effects of globalization on America. The truth right. of the condition has to do with the lie that there's a chemical imbalance. The truth has to do with the explosion in drug addiction had to do with the prescription of illicit drugs to people who weren't addicts initially. You know, all that is the truth. And then there's the, the more personal truth of what your behavior is doing to your loved ones. Uh-huh. And are you gonna run from that or are you gonna have an empathic moment?
1: Right, right. right See, right.
0: I, I'm about,
1: yeah. You still gotta own your shit inside of the mess that is the modern world. You don't have any choice, but somehow and, and talking questions. about the mess is an in an entrance to that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, okay. yeah. So I feel like we we, you know, I set for two hours and yeah. uh, we've used most of that, but you know, we had to start later and all that. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like we've you know gotten. It's a good conversation. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know where we we're have, going, but yeah. Yeah, we got no we got places to go, so let's do a round two in a few weeks. Does okay. that sound good?
1: Sure, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Always nice to chat.
0: Yeah, no, no, I think people are gonna be very, um, very interested in this. So cool. And you know, just for the record, resistance recovery, you know, it's a named thing and there's yeah. some ideas floating around and I'm gonna eventually,
1: you know, kinda of codify it a little bit, but
0: that's that's what i I like it
1: i like it and you know i'm asking these questions as like i i'm sort of a devil's advocate position but i really dig it and in a way i feel like the way that um chapter two thursday night's critique of the rest of aa woke me up and made me pay attention um this kind of critique of larger social situations or whatever um can have that same kind of like oh i'm paying attention now right you're, you're seeing the thing that I'm living on this broader scale, and then, right? Yeah, I've been to all these meetings; and they were crappy. You're telling me meetings are crappy, but this is different. Oh, right. I've been living this life in this society. You're telling me why that's all fucked up. I know it's fucked up. So, right no, so now, we're, now, we're now we have a common something in common, and I'm paying attention. Right. I'm I'm so glad
0: to hear you say that because that is my experience, mm-hmm. and it is the experience of my clients.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: And in fact, I think. Push come to shove, I would say a higher percentage of them feel this than they do the big book mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah,
1: big books, old school, man. Yeah, we're old school. <laughs> <laughs> Time for something new. All
0: right, James, thank you so much. Do you want to, um, before we say goodbye, do you want to plug the game?
1: Oh yeah, I write. I also write board games. <laughs> If yeah. you interested, I wrote, I wrote this really long, like, uh, branching narrative board game called Role Player Adventures. Role um, Player Adventures. Role Player Adventures. You can find it on the internet. Uh, this, it's got, like, two days left on Kickstarter. I don't know when this will air, but it'll probably be done by the time this goes up. Um, but it's still out there to be found if you're curious. Um, yeah, there it is. I don't want to sell it too hard, but it's sort of, it's a weird like other part of my life, the sort of imaginary creative writing aspect that it's like, for me, it's connected, but I don't know if it's topically. You (laughs) know, resistance recovery is going to be all about weird. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Talk soon.
0: All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.